Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Welcome to the podcast. This is episode 399 for February 3rd, 2021. For show notes, links, and more, you can go to leanblog.org slash 399. Please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already done so. And again, I want to thank our friends at Styles Associates for sponsoring this episode. Thanks for listening. Well, hi, welcome to the podcast. I'm Mark Graben. We're joined today by Lisa Nichols. Lisa, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks, Mark. Well, it's really good to have you here. Um, In terms of background on Lisa, we're going to talk about her experience at Toyota. And I think we'll hear some of her career arc, you know, before Toyota and what she's been doing here after Toyota. Um, Her website is lisanicholsconsulting.com. And that's Lisa with an E, L-E-S-A, nicholsconsulting.com. We'll put a link uh, to that in the show notes. And Lisa also contributed, ah, see, I stumbled over it before we started recording. Um, She wrote a chapter. I didn't stumble intentionally that second time. Um, Lisa wrote a chapter in um, our anthology book, Practicing Lean. And um, you can read that chapter for free on Lisa's website. And we'll put um, a link to that in the show notes as well. So um, Lisa, thank you for doing that chapter. It was nice. Absolutely. That was fun. And um, you, you've got a book that you're working on right now. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask about that. Uh, well, it's not. No. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. This all relates back to Mr. Oba, the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe if we could go through and share some of the stories about Mr. Oba, then I can tell you what I'm trying to do with it. OK, sure, sure. Right. Um, so, yeah, today's um, episode with Lisa um, is in part an opportunity to reflect on, um, on uh, Hajime Oba, um, who passed away in um, late 2020. Um, and we, you know, we've done a couple other episodes um, talking um, about him and his work and, and the lessons um, you know, from him. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit more, uh, Lisa, and thank you for um, agreeing to talk about that and share about that. But um, I'd be, you know, I think it would be interesting for the audience to hear uh, about your career and and what led up to you going to work at Toyota. It was a little bit of a non-traditional path compared to, let's say, the stereotypical industrial engineering path that somebody like me might have taken, right? Absolutely. Um, Yes, very different path. Uh, So actually, I started in the political science universe. Um, I was I'm curious since birth, I think. And so the political science route in college was very intriguing. Um, you learn about history, put things in context. And so that was that was very interesting. On the side of that, I was also interested in um, criminal justice. Mm-hmm. So I got an opportunity to go to Washington to work for a U.S. senator. And I didn't have the luxury of being very specific about what I was going to be assisting with, but I was going to be working on legislative research and summarizing the different positions and the backgrounds and proposing uh, positions for the senator. And when I got involved in that, I realized, oh, I am so interested in everything. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not just criminal justice. It's you know financial systems. It's all this. 
So I wound up talking to his chief of staff before I was going to come back from Washington. And I said, look, I'm all over the place here. I'm just fascinated with it all. And she said, well, if that's the case, I would recommend communications for you. And I was a little disappointed because I thought, oh, that's so general. You know, I'm not that that doesn't really sound like it, but I respect this person quite a lot. So when I came back um, and I went to start a college again and, and I took a couple of courses in communications. And from then on, I was like the political science aspect, if you can't communicate it about it. And then the organizational communication factors were just fascinating when I reflected back on working in the Senate. So I went that uh, studied communication and got a joint, you know, political science and, and communication degree. And then things started to really shift into an interesting universe for me. And that was I went to intern for a um, public relations firm that in Kentucky that had been asked to help with community and labor relations. Um, for the building of the first Toyota wholly owned factory in the United States, which was in Georgetown, Kentucky. So they needed a uh, young on the ground person who would do anything and everything to figure out the construction, how to communicate and how to connect with the community. So that was fascinating. I love that. I love the watching the building, you know, just the whole watching the, the facilities emerge. And then Toyota said, we're going to come um, to Kentucky, but we're not going to have our staff yet. We're going to have a trailer and that trailer is just going to have a few people in it. But we do need somebody to help handle public relations or communications thing. So I was nominated for that. And that was just terrific because the people that were in that trailer were the ones that were going to be, they were the initial runners of the, of the operations. And so from there, I just followed my curiosity um, into trying to understand anything and everything I could about Toyota, not so much about the culture, but about the technical infrastructure that I saw going up around me. Hmm. And then listening, so that was from the construction firm's viewpoint, but then started to listen to the Toyota people talk about how they were going to utilize this space. And accidentally, I will say, I mean, people say it's not, but I think it is. I wound up um, working with Mr. Cho, Mm. who was the president of that facility. Um, And he needed to make speeches out in the community and his English was not wonderful. And he had, but he had like amazing depth and experience um, to develop TPS in Japan, working with Mr. Ono. Mm -hmm. And I, as, as did everybody, I felt an instant connection with him. And I thought, if I can write anything for this man, I'm going to try my best to do it. So I became a speechwriter and did that for about four years, I guess. I, I had that as one of my many jobs, but it was probably my favorite. Um, so I would, you know, work with him on, you know, what is it you want to try to communicate? How can I go to the shop floor to see that in life so that I can help explain, you know, what you want to communicate. Um, through that, he um, asked me uh, on a couple of occasions, but 
it, I'd been to the floor and, and specifically I'd been out to look at the new um, the die construction capability and stamping. Yeah. And so he had mentioned that and somebody wanted to talk about that to an audience. And so I went to see it and I came back and I'm telling him all about it. I'm so excited. And he asked me, Lisa, uh, what is it that you ultimately want to do? And I was like, uh, I don't know. And he said, well, you love TPS, but are you going to become a technical scientist of TPS or a social scientist? Mm. And I was hmm, I don't know the difference. And he explained to me that the technical side is what we can feel and touch and look at, but the social science is more the, how are we structuring to manage the people and how are we as individuals behaving in the system? So I said, I think I want to be a social scientist because I would be more for that, that's where I'm curious. He said, good, because you're starting to sound like a technical scientist. So let's just be clear about, you know, where, where you want to be. Yeah. And so then I started working a lot on some other kind of big issues with Toyota as they were growing in North America and becoming a full partner in the auto industry. Um, there were a lot of issues around domestic content and um, not having happy relations with the supply base that was here and was being asked to supply Toyota in a way that seemed different than the traditional automotive industry. So I was in the middle of that. And out of that whole thing, um, Toyota realized that, you know, look, we're getting all this pressure from the United States to help them understand, like, are we doing business in the right way? And um, why is it so different? So Dr. Toyota and um, others, obviously, but they decided to create, um, it's called Toyota Supplier Support Center or TSSC. And its mission was to be, I saw it as kind of a technology transfer, um, a corporate contribution that would not be just writing a check, it would be setting up an organization that could help the supply base and help US industry understand, um, take the mystery out of what TPS is by providing resources who would be on the ground in the company's uh, environments and help them implement it in their stamping or casting or whatever kind of processing beyond assembly that, that they had. Um, so Toyota creates that. Mr. Obo was assigned. Mr. Cho was his, uh, you know, like he was somebody that Mr. Obo really looked up to. So Mr. Obo was completely excited to be connected to this project. And he was named as the general manager to get it up and running. Mr. Cho was, became the chairman of TSSC. Um, and then we had a board of all the plants um, in North America, all their Japanese and Americans um, had, you know, vice president and president level became the kind of founding uh, advisor board. And Mr. Ova was at the helm. So I was hired um, to, <laughs> there were three groups that he had designed. And I thought this was really interesting. It, it was called Toyota Supplier Support Center, but it was based off of the Operations Management Consulting Division in Japan. And 
Mr. Oba always was taking a unique tact on things. So he said, okay, we're going to have this technical group that will go out to plants and help them implement the production system. But I'm going to create this other group called research and training. And that's where I want Lisa and that team to come together. And then there was a third group that was administration and, and planning. And the research and training group, its responsibility was to connect with U.S. industry. You know, again, it's back to communication and curiosity. Um, you know, understand who some potential partners are for us to, and Mr. O was thinking was, who can we learn from? So we said, okay, well, there's industry leaders out there. There's government. There are um, we do want to hook up with some media people. And then the universities was a particular emphasis. Mr. Oba's thinking was that um, we only had so much expertise and we're coming into America. We need to understand from people who are experts in America and that the universities would, you know, um, give us some reflection of how we were doing. Yeah. So I ran that group with him and, or for him, I'm saying. Um, and you had asked, um, I was thinking as we were talking earlier about how I met Mr. Oba, mm -hmm. um, he actually was not involved in interviewing me. And so he hadn't met me. I guess he just heard about me. <laughs> I, um, one week before I started this job at TSSC, I broke my foot and I mean, broke it pretty impressively. <laughs> So I came into the office for the first day on crutches. And so I remember Mr. Oba, you know, I got to my desk and everything sat down. He comes over and says, you know, hello, how are you doing? And just really general, you know, he goes away and he watches me. I felt like, you know, that whole day and for a few days that week, because we had an open office, you know, and so encourage communication and all that. But I felt like he is just watching me. What am I supposed to be doing other than learning this new job? Yeah. So towards the end of the day, you know, maybe mid end of the week, he came over and he said, how about your foot? And I'm like, well, you know, crutches, how long will this be? I said, well, um, not sure, maybe four to six weeks. And he said, mm, you can't go to see anything for four to six weeks. Oh. And I said, well, I think no is not the right answer. <laughs> the question is, how am I going to do that? So he said, well, you're, you're interested to go. And I said, yes. And so he said, I'm going to send you with this one of our guys that worked hands-on on the floor. So I want to send you to this place in uh, New Jersey. And I literally went on crutches with mm. this guy in the middle of a snow and ice storm. Oh. And I mean, it was just crazy. But Mr. Oba, I have to say, I think that was probably the first test that I passed with him. <laughs> I didn't let those crutches stop me. <laughs> yeah. So that's my kind of then it, I was at TSSC for, you know, six years. And then I asked Mr. Oba, can I please have an opportunity to understand the reality behind these concepts? It seems so difficult to implement. And so I became production manager for Toyota. And then after that, went back to the Toyota headquarters and helped to set up the operations and management development division. Yeah. So very rambling career there. 
Yeah, no, it's it's it, that's interesting. Um, I mean, maybe we can go back and and unpack um, you know some of the stories and experiences from the TSSC time. But you know, I'm really intrigued. I mean, maybe one way of expressing some of that is um, you know if I can ask you about that transition, mm. then to go into uh, production manager role and and can you help set context for people? You know, at what level that was within or, you know, and what department that was um, and set some of that context. And then you know, I'd be interested to hear, okay, now go from learning and teaching and helping others to now having production responsibility. Yes. Um, okay. So at the time that I did that, Toyota had grown up quite a bit in the U S and so we had multiple manufacturing operations and, um, we had already started to expand and put in powertrain organizations as well, um, which looking back on it now, I really see that as it's almost like uh, being a supplier really to sure. Toyota. Um, so Mr. Ova, when, <laughs> when I asked him about the chance to rotate or have a position inside a Toyota plant, he said, well, you're at a manager level and that's really not heard of. You've got to grow up from the production floor or, you know, uh, you're going to have a really hard time and I can't, I don't think they would accept you. Um, but let me think about it. And then he asked me, um, he did some investigation. And he came back and he said, what kind of place do you want to be in? And I said, well, um, be good if I could go to assembly. And because I'm not an engineer and it would maybe be easier for me to manage. And, and he smiled at me and said, yeah, it also has a lot of people and you like people, right? Yeah. Like, right. He said, okay, I think powertrain um, is better for you. <laughs> and to me, I mean, I gasping, seriously, could you find a more equipment intensive environment for me? <laughs> yeah. And he said, I think that's going to be the best place because you are a supplier to Toyota. Um, and you, it's, you're going to learn the real aspects of manufacturing aren't about people or machines. It's about people and machines. Uh, yeah. Um, were you, so powertrain for people, listeners who aren't, really auto, you know, don't know yeah. auto industry. I mean, I started my career um, General Motors powertrain and I was in an engine plant. Yes. Yeah. So powertrain is engines and, and transmissions and, and yeah. even within engine world. So like where I was, and I'm curious to hear a little more detail about where you were here when geek out on some of this for a minute. So I was working in a couple of areas that were suppliers to engine assembly. So yes. we talk about machines and people. I was an industrial engineer for um, the engine block uh, area department and connecting rods. And so then th that that fed into engine assembly, which then fed into um, two different General Motors assembly plants if we were um, doing well. And we were often not. But it was within that context that, I had the, the good fortune to learn my second plant manager there was one of the original General Motors knew me people. I don't I don't know if you knew that, Lisa. From, no, I didn't. Mm -mm. From our previous conversation. So that was that was my really kind of introduction to um, 
TPS, even though General Motors okay. certainly didn't want to call it that. So I, I, I can picture, I think, the environment that, that you were in. So, yeah, so we in the facility that I was in, um, there was a four cylinder engine and a V6 engine, and then we called it axle. It was all the, you know, transmission components. Mm -hmm. And in each of those shops, you know, the the engine and the uh, engine sides and the um, transmission, we had machining that created, you know, that took the rough material and, and basically machined it and polished it and got it in finished shape to send to the internal assembly lines. Um, so in my case, we had um, the, like we made steering arm knuckles and the shafts for the, you know, a lot of the wheel components, those were machined. And then we would move those just in time to our assembly lines. Um, and the assembly lines at that time had a tack time of, I think, or a, you know, we needed to meet a pace to supply the vehicle plants for Toyota. It was 27 seconds. And the, I had no idea. I mean, just no idea what just in time was <laughs> until I went there because literally if you're, so you're making the, the whole axle, um, component of the steering, the steering and brake mechanisms, you've got your spring and strut tower. And we would make those and put them in the pallets of think maybe 40 per and ship them over literally just in time to the vehicle plant. If anything happened on one of our assembly lines, if we had a machine down or some kind of material trouble, if it was down for more than 15 minutes, parts of the Toyota assembly line would come to a halt. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, and yeah, unfortunately I had a bit of that, you know, <laughs> experience. I felt like the first year that's all I did, but was learn how to manage major breakdowns. Um, so yeah, so that was the real world of just in time. I didn't really know that I was going to be learning all of that, but that's what Mr. Oba set me up for. It turned out that the guy who was the, had followed in Mr. Cho's footsteps, uh, Mr. Amazawa, he had worked under Mr. Ono, and he was the manager of the same shop that I was in Japan, and, and he was responsible for transforming it to TPS under Mr. Ono. Mm -hmm. So he became a an amazing mentor to me because there was no trouble that we had in my area that he didn't come to see and have some really unique, almost like camaraderie perspective on it. Because mm -hmm. um, he had kind of seen it before, probably. Oh, yeah. He'd seen it before. And he, yes, uh, he, yeah, he had. But um, so in, the, in that coaching style then and mentoring you, um, somebody who has seen it before, it seems like the the approach at Toyota would be not to come in and tell you the answer. Oh, Lisa, I've seen this before. Here's what you need to do. It's a mm -hmm. different approach, right? No, it's, yeah, he, he was great at asking me. It, these weren't Socratic method kinds of questions, you know. It wasn't like I, he was arrogant and had, you know, the exact answer I needed to discover. But um, there was one time when we were standing on the line and, I can only imagine what he was seeing and I wasn't seeing it. Mm. And he said, so this is the type of um, screw gun you want on this assembly line. 
And I'm looking at it thinking, well, these guns have been here a lot longer than I have. And I don't really know the pros and cons of that. And he said, I don't really like those, those guns so much. I'm sitting there thinking, well, if you don't like them, why are they here? But okay. And I said, why don't you like them? And he said, well, if you notice there's a, and we went over to the team member, he said the team member can, uh, you know, of course we want them to use the forward motion of the, the screw gun, but there's this button too, where they can back it out. And I was like, Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that sounds like that wouldn't be exactly great if we want, he said, why not? And so we're standing there. And I said, well, if you can back out the screw, then you're covering up a problem and we're going to wind up with trouble that isn't going to show up on an and on board. Um, he said, exactly. Um, so, but then it was like, obviously that was my trouble, you know, but then he, he's very, you know, says to me, how do you think something like this happened? Mm. You know, how could we have these type of guns that I don't like here and that you don't know anything about? I know you just got here, but, and I said, well, I'm going to learn all about the screw guns all over this place. I can tell you. Yeah. He said, well, anyway, so he just challenged me and said, well, I want to know what you learn and please come back to me. And so that we can improve. Mm-hmm. And so we wound up doing a big, we call it Yoka 10, but looking across the whole powertrain facility to see how did these different types of guns and what's the best for a system that's supposed to believe in stopping exactly when we have trouble. Yeah. Um, I'm just, I'm uh, one, one quick other tidbit, just comparing, um, the general motors environment in the mid nineties to what you were experiencing, um, between powertrain and the assembly plant, their comfort level would have been a couple of days worth of inventory. Wow. Yeah. That was the goal. That was not always held to hence some of the problems that led to us getting, um, a new, um, new plant manager, but you know, it's this different mindset of like buffering, to protect yourself from problems. Mm. Like sure, on some level, they would have rather avoided the problems, but I think the GM leadership style of pressuring people and yelling and blaming and you know putting quantity over quality ironically ended up undercutting the ability to deliver um, uh, to the plant. It was just a completely a different philosophy. And it was not doing well compared to our bunch benchmark plants um, yep. that, that we looked at, whether it was Toyota or others. Yep. Yeah, I could talk about the whole Numi thing for a while and how we translate the, the knowledge, you know, it's supposed to be a learning lab. And then the people who learn there come to other facilities, you know, back to GM facilities. Um, but that's a pretty big order for people because you've only been living in the system that Toyota helped to set up. It's not the same as coming back to your home plant and implementing it from scratch. Big yeah. challenge for those people. Yeah. And so my plant manager, Larry Spiegel, um, had been one of those original NUMI General Motors people who was really successful. He was at a transmission plant. And had done a successful turnaround. And so they brought him into a slightly bigger job, the um, Livonia engine plant. But um, for listeners who are interested in more of the Numi story or Lisa, I'll point you to this. Back in 2016, 
I did a two-part interview with one of those original GM Numi people, Steve Barra. Uh huh. I know was, his name. He yeah. was reflecting on that experience, and um, unlike Larry, who stuck with GM and retired from GM and then was teaching at the University of Michigan. Uh, Steve said, I, I can see, I'm paraphrasing, I can see no reasonable path forward of really transforming anything within General Motors, so I'm going to leave. Mm. Mm. Basically worked as more, you know, worked as a consultant. Because, you know, he, Steve was saying, like, the one story was, you know, that some of the original um, Numi, Numi people wanted to band together and go as a team to a facility back in General Motors and turn it around. Yeah. General Motors said, no, we're going to throw you one here, one there. And, and, and I think they, a lot of them looked and said, OK, I'm going to be a drop of water in the proverbial ocean. Uh, it's no, that's not going to work. Yeah. And, you know. I, I personally believe that. I mean, I, I just felt really bad for the people that I worked with when we supported Numi. You know, we would help them with Kaizen and everything. And I would interact a lot with plant managers who we're going to be going back to a GM facility. And I thought, wow, this is so hard for them to come here and mm -hmm. learn this system because they weren't exactly all on board from day one. They just wanted to say, this is my current thinking of how operations should be. And I see this and it looks different. And I'm not sure I accept this yet. Um, and then over time they did or didn't accept it, but then they're tasked with going back and being that proverbial drop in the in the ocean. And it's just too much for to expect, I think. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask a couple other questions of, you know, lessons that you had learned um, from Mr. Oba, um, you know, from some notes, personal notes you had shared with me in advance. Um, and I think it was number one on this list, as you as you put it, uh, managers must fight to have floor time. And I'm curious, like, you know, is, what if you could kind of elaborate on that thought? What what creates that challenge? Why do managers really need to prioritize getting out to the floor? Well, I don't know about, you know, other automakers, because um, Mr. Oba kind of specifically, I think, kept us away from mm -hmm. studying, you know, that part of the universe too deeply. Sure. Um, I will say in Toyota's case, mm -hmm. uh, at least in Georgetown when I was a, a production manager, the pressure that I felt was, okay, I knew conceptually that just-in-time balances quality, cost, and lead time. Safety is an assumed thing. But when I moved into that position, I inherited a schedule that was done by the previous production manager who had grown up from the floor. And, and that schedule was meeting after meeting after meeting to review, here are your safety results. Mm -hmm. And what are you doing about it? I mean, very deep into, let's say, problem investigation. And so you go from a safety meeting to a quality meeting mm -hmm. to a productivity meeting. And I literally had the, the guy who was plant manager came to me at one point. He said, Lisa, why aren't you coming to the um, productivity meeting? <laughs> and I said, I'm focusing on safety and quality. I can't focus on everything at one time. And he said, right, but 
the organization has to. Mm -hmm. So either it's you or it's somebody you designate. Mm. So I wound up finally, you know, figuring that out. It was pretty early on to how to distribute the people that supported, you know, my role. And then I found I got kind of good at that. And so I freed my time up to, let's say, go to the safety and quality meetings and skip the others. And so that gave me floor time. But what I realized is my peers that were managers, also of course, owner and V6 engine, yep, they were still in those meetings. And, I, you know, I felt bad for them, you know, because they didn't, I was in a unique spot, I guess, because everybody knew how much I wanted to learn. Yeah. Um, but we would be in those meetings, they're deep problem solving. But if you're not on the floor, how in the world are you supposed to know? enough to represent these, this analysis and the countermeasures. One thing that when Gary Combus came in, um, he held, he listened to the managers. He had forums with us and then he listened to what the barriers were for us to, you know, be doing some of the things we expect Toyota types. And it was all these meetings and he freed up. It was really wonderful. He took, he said to every manager and above, between, I think it was one and two, you, it's a meeting free zone. Mm. Nobody can schedule any meetings. And that means whenever any of you see each other or I see you between those hours, you should be on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, so that's what I mean by having to fight to get there. Yeah. So yeah, my, people might be surprised what you're describing of the, you know, the series of meetings and, um, yeah, that's a reality in many organizations. But um, yeah, going back to what you were talking about being uh, a speechwriter, even then, because I'm like you, you know, you you had that curiosity and that drive to go out there. And yeah, to, yeah, that's the other thing. I think because the people, every manager in there besides me, had grown up from the floor. Not that they aren't curious people, but they've pretty much seen it all before. Yeah. Um, so when they were speaking to a countermeasure or something, they knew what they were talking about. And for me, I'm going, I, I'm not going to explain us without knowing what we've done and what we're, you know, trying to improve for the future. Yeah. So I maybe fought for floor time more than others did. So um, as, as a manager, you had um, so there's the team members. I mean, you talk about people working their way up. Uh, people would often go from uh, like, you know, my friend David Meyer, who we've talked to on the podcast a couple of times, was a team member, became a team leader. And then I believe he reached. Yeah, he was a group leader. Group leader. And then yep. you had group re group leaders reporting to you as a manager. Was that the. Well, that's basically? the structure Toyota. I don't know if they you know, it's been a while since I've worked at Toyota. So I don't know if they still have this in place, but they created assistant manager roles okay. to to have the group leaders report to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know Mr. Ogle wasn't keen on that. Um, why, why is that? He felt and I know yeah, also in Japan, the manager role is revered. Mm -hmm. It's it's the connector between the shop floor and the upper management. So there's a strategy for the year, you know, a, a Hoshin strategy. That's not going to happen on the floor unless you've got a manager who can translate that and really connect with the people on the floor. So he felt like 
there's one more layer here uh, between a manage management person and the people who are doing the work. Um, you know, we always all had the pressure of we don't add value. So, you know, as managers, unless we can develop people to be stronger problem solvers and we can solve the problems that they can't get to. Mm-hmm. So any kind of interruption in there was was a uh, not encouraged by him. Yeah. Um, one other thing I want to follow up on, um, there was a phrase you used, you know, talking about priorities and what you focused on. Um, you said safety is an assumed thing, but that doesn't mean safety was automatic because of this effort you're talking about. Can you elaborate on yes. um, that idea yeah. of uh, safety as assumed? Well, that was probably one of my biggest learning points was before I went to the shop floor as a manager, that's what I heard from Mr. Oba and others is that, you know, we're talking about quality, cost and lead time for just in time. And then, you know, people who were at TSSC would say, well, wait a second, you know, well, what about safety? And Mr. Oba and others would say, no, no, it's assumed that safety is there. Mm-hmm. And I, it's on, it, I think what he was saying is it's a prerequisite, mm-hmm. of course, it's safe. Um, but when I got into operations, I realized the different levels of safety required. And while I was there, Toyota um, started looking very seriously at the ergonomics issues. Yeah. Um, this, I think, actually was probably in the first six months that I got there. Um, in Japan, you know, we have aging workforce and then in the United States, we're trying to see how can we, you know, make these jobs as robust for people as possible. And so Toyota in Japan came up with a, um, a system to assess whether the job, the processes were, we called them green, yellow, or red. Mm-hmm. And then that would give you an instruction for your know, direction for what needs to be improved. And it took probably nine months of my personal time focusing on nothing but ergonomics improvements mm-hmm. with a team of, because our materials were just so fundamentally heavy in machining. I mean, when you pick the thing up, it's already, a, you know, so, um, so I, I learned that, yeah, safety should be a precondition, but it's not without a lot of effort to maintain right. and improve. Yeah. But I imagine then coming back to a communication issue, um, you know, the mantra that had been brought into General Motors and other automakers was safety, quality, delivery, cost. And that safety was articulated. There might be a risk of leaders thinking, well, of course, safety is a priority. Like I've seen at Toyota plants, whether it's San Antonio or in Japan, people enter the plant walking through the safety arch. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, symbolism and, um, you know, kind of um, attention given to that. There might be a risk if it's not articulated, people somehow hear well, they're not talking about safety. They only talk about quality, cost, and lead time. That would be a potential disconnect, right? Right. So that was the, I, I still believe that I've become, and I'm not the only one, but I've become a hybrid. And that is the, the TPS strategist like Mr. Ova 
um, would speak that way. You know, of course, it's a, you know it's a prerequisite, and we must focus on quality, cost, and lead time. Well, from an operations side, I don't remember anybody in a management position that didn't start with safety oh, and quality. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Because what I came away with, Mark, is that it takes so much energy for people to get the product done safely with the quality that it's it stunned me, really, how much energy that takes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why I spent my time on safety and quality, because, as you know, the, the lead time systems were already in place inside Toyota. Um, I didn't have to worry about that so much other than problem solving. Um, but the safety and quality aspects were fascinating for me. And it's stuck with me. Like when I come into a, a plant that I'm looking at for the first time, I'm always looking first at safety and quality. Right. Because to me, you know, the productivity comes later. If you are working with people to make sure their processes are safe and they can build quality, then if you're building a safe process and a quality process, it's going to be productive too. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there was uh, alignment when you talk about Toyota wanting to learn from um, other companies, there was a partnership with Alcoa right? as one of those companies. Um, Paul O'Neill, who was the CEO in, in the late eighties um, and through the nineties, who uh, we also lost uh, in 2020. Um, Paul O'Neill already had that, principle and that strong belief um, that nobody should be hurt at work putting yes. safety as you know a prevailing um, focus um, you know I'm paraphrasing his uh, you know what I've heard him say and, and talk about that you know if you all if you do all of things in an organization um, in leadership that are required that are required to deliver, your goal of perfect safety, then um, you you will build what he called habitual excellence, and everything else right. will follow. Yeah. You can be the best in the world at safety, and at the same time, aim to be the best in the world at everything else you do. So it seemed like you know that the, the fact that that belief and philosophy was already there uh, must yes. have been the reason for yeah. that collaboration. Yeah, Mr. Over really connected with him because of that strong. Um, not just philosophy, but, you know, he, he, he acted on it. Um, one thing I would say about the safety aspect too, it, that I, I learned from Mr. Oba and, and others, but it's when, when we kind of TPS people or lean, I often find that we want to look for waste. Mm -hmm. And what I learned from Mr. Oba early on, thank goodness, is that no, we don't look for waste. We look for overburden. So in that overburden, you know, the term in Japanese is Murray, and it can be either physical overburden, which is going to get into the ergonomics and the acute right. potential. But the other is the mental overburden. Right. And those are so intertwined and hard to see. Um, for me, they're not hard to see now. But if you can see, this is what Mr. Ova, I feel like he was a systems, a human systems engineer. Mm -hmm. um, he would look at the physical work and he would not come from the viewpoint of, oh, hey, how can we make this more productive? 
It's how can we eliminate that overburden mm-hmm. right there? Mm-hmm. And so the physical overburden was a lot easier to see. But I had one week with him where we just looked and only dealt with mental overburden for people. And that also had a huge impact on me because, you know, we don't speak about these things all the time. I mean, you get used to overburden and so you don't bring it up anymore. Um, But his teaching and my feeling and belief is that that's our responsibility to uncover Mm -hmm. and, and help. That seems like a very direct, practical manifestation of respect for people or respect yes. for humanity. Not just talking about it, but right. driving priorities and actions. Then. Right. Yeah. yeah. And he was just a genius at those kinds of things because we've been speaking a lot about the floor, but he's also a management development um, guru, I'd say, in that he didn't want to have special opportunities for people to learn. It was through the daily job. Mm-hmm. So we would have, you know, everybody has a staff meeting, right? Well, we would have a TSSC staff meeting and on Monday mornings. And that thing was not a staff meeting <laughs> that I have been to uh, since then. It was a learning meeting. And so like Mr. Ova would have somebody present, um, you know, we've got like 15 people around the table and different perspectives, different plants that they've worked in. And so we would have all been, let's say in the last month or so working with tack time or make pacemakers. Mm-hmm. So Mr. Oba would have heard enough of that to realize that we didn't actually know why we were putting pacemakers in place. Mm-hmm. So we had, I remember one day I thought, wow, this, this is so, intense. I can't imagine any other company doing this. We had a whole morning on the benefit of conveyors. Mm -hmm. And that was just the start. That became an ongoing theme that we came back to. What's the purpose of a conveyor? What's the basic logic behind automation? So he would, we would go out every week and go to these different companies we were working with and see all these different situations And he didn't feel good about launching us on the world if we didn't understand the basic thinking way behind what we were working with them to apply. And I have to say that that I don't work with people who do that kind of thing. And it's just it's very liberating and um, motivating for people to be in that kind of management environment. Yeah, yeah. Um, one other thing about the environment I wanted to ask, you know, one of the things that jumped out at me from going through your notes is the ideas you had written down, learn from mistakes, willingness to share. Like I, you know, this year I started a, a new podcast series called My Favorite Mistake, where we talk to people from all different um, walks of professional life who share willingly a story about a mistake and what they've learned from that. And a lot of times the conversation goes into, yeah, how do we create that culture in a workplace? So what are some of your reflections around what you had taken down in your notes there? Learn from mistakes, willingness to share. Yeah. um, That one is so deep and I feel like I could do a companion, um, you know, like a companion to your podcast. I could give you 20,000 things. Maybe maybe, maybe I can sign you up. I'll put you on. Well, we can talk later. Maybe you can come on my favorite mistake sometime. But 
So Toyota sets up an environment where you are going to make mistakes. If there isn't buffer between the processes or there isn't much buffer there, we know things are going to mess up. And we want to do that because we want people to learn from the mistakes. But if we don't learn, <laughs> we don't learn, then we keep making the same mistake and it's quite costly. Right. Um, so we have to share. We have to learn and we have to share. And by sharing, you also learn more about what you really did. Um, so <laughs> I'm just thinking about 100 examples, but um, we had a situation at a supplier that we worked with that was a kind of model plant for TSSC. And I, they had a TPS system in place that was really good. And we brought people there to take a look at it. And so I had been a production manager at um, Georgetown and Mr. Ovo, and I, but I'd come back to TSSC and he said, I want you to go take a look at that plant and tell me what problems Toyota is causing for it. And so <laughs> I came in and I looked at the regular, you know, their normal flow of processes, but I missed something very important that he knew about. Mm. And that was, and I shouldn't have because I'd already been in production and I knew about this stuff, but I missed it. Yeah. Um, somebody, because Toyota had increased the, um, um, they changed the mix of options for this this company. So they, you know, it's no big deal for most of the um, assembly plant if somebody changes out the rubber stripping, you know, it's not that big of a deal. But for these people, they were making plastic um, air registers and, and cup holder components. And the color, just the color change that Toyota had introduced with the new model um, caused their volume to spike. I mean, it went, you wouldn't see it in the normal cells that I walked through, but they had, because the volume was so crazy from Toyota, they had set up this like offline center. I mean, it was just one person back there, but it was one person with the process set up and that person was frantically working. Yeah. There's that overburden. No, it was overburdened. And yes, and the overburden was caused by the, you know, we talk about um, fluctuation. You know, we want to try to get everything as even as possible. What I had observed when I went through was the evenness of the regular, you know, specs from Toyota. But because of just this one color change, we had made that crazy just spike for them. And it, it was terrible. So I... Um, you know, obviously reported back to Mr. Oba and stayed there with that person to help Kaizen that process. And then my job then was to go back to Toyota plant and help them understand the burden that we put on them. So it was um, tough to, you know, admit to my boss after all this time that um, I still didn't know how to find an offline, you know, workaround. And then I got the pleasure of going back to my peers at the plants in Georgetown and helping them feel all warm and fuzzy about my experience. And then I had the chance to report it in our um, Monday morning staff meeting so that I could let all the, you know, the people around me 
learn from my mistake. And it was at that point in reporting it out to the other guys that were there with me that I realized the value of it. I mean, it's tremendous because if they can avoid missing that for themselves and they can see me as a bit of a humble leader, you know, a bit, um, and say, well, she was confident enough to go in there and report back to Mr. Hova, but she's got enough humility to come back here and tell us that she missed the big thing. Right. Um, so it's creating technical learning, but then also hopefully some management development. Yeah. And um, there, I, I did record uh, an episode of My Favorite Mistake with um, Asao Yoshino, who had um, you know, almost 40 year um, career um, at General Motors. I'm going to hold up the book that Katie Anderson wrote sort of with him, about him, um, about those lessons. And Mr. Yoshino tells a story um, of a, a mistake. You know, it, it fell in the category of human error. You mean to grab this and you grab that instead and it caused a problem in the paint shop. And, you know, his leaders took responsibility for having not created uh, a system that could have, let's say, you know, mistake-proofed that. Right, right. um, You know, he said that was a very important lesson to learn at a a, a pretty young age Mm. in his career. So I'll uh, I'll put it And that's why I stayed at that plant to, you know, because I knew it's leadership's responsibility. And if we, TSSC, have worked with that company to help them be a model and my leadership didn't find that, then my leadership better be helping them overcome it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's completely expected. Um, it, it's hard for people. We had, you know, managers who came to TSSC from outside companies and they were not at all comfortable to be on the hook all the time for the learning mistakes that their people were, mm-hmm. were doing. Um, it's like, well, wait a second, I just got here and it's not me. And that guy, you know, he doesn't have this degree or he didn't know that. And, you know, Mr. Oba and others just look at you and say, what is your point? You know, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to help them succeed? So it is a cultural shift, but lucky for me, I grew up in Toyota pretty much. So I think that was, so I'm sorry, I cut you off. I just, I got grounded in that early. Yeah. Well, and that's where you, you know, think of those General Motors people who came into NUMI. It was really difficult. They had to unlearn. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Be willing to learn um, from Toyota. I, I was going to also add, you know, I think one other point of alignment philosophically with Alcoa and Paul O'Neill was that Paul O'Neill believed very strongly. I mean, he would say, for example, that, you know, for, to a plant manager, anything that happens in your factory is your responsibility. And likewise, as CEO of the company, he didn't shirk that responsibility as well. And you might think, well, we've got, I mean, I don't know what the employee count, I'm sure, surely it was tens of thousands, 100,000 employees. You think, well, how can I be responsible for every, quote unquote, dumb decision that somebody might make? And like, well, you're, I mean, that comes with, that comes with the role of, of leadership is that burden and that Mm -hmm. responsibility. What I liked about uh, Toyota's approach in that kind of case, I would say, yes, I'm the CEO, but 
I'm only directly responsible for the decisions of these people around me. You know, it's a tiered approach. So it's that team member, team leader, group leader, so that everybody has a span of control Mm -hmm. that's manageable-ish. Now, it is different at the CEO level, Mm -hmm. um, but that same kind of, um, if you have a structure on the floor that is right size to catch the problems as they happen, um, then it makes that pressure of the CEO a lot less mm-hmm. um, and a lot easier to manage because when there is a failure, you know where to go. Yeah. Um, I mean, one final question here before we wrap up, um, you know, and, and thank you for introducing me, making the connection to Mr. Oba's, uh, one of his sons, Hide Oba. Um, it was great to do an episode with him and hear reflections on working with his father and learning from him. Um, one thing he talked about was this idea of the soul of Toyota. And, and I know that was something that made you think. What, what was your reaction to that? Well, it's a word that you don't hear often in manufacturing. Um, and I noticed that when I was with Mr. Oba and Mr. Cho, um, they will use that word. And so it became a word that I used, not all the time, but you know, purposefully uh, to figure things out. And my take on it is that what they want to know um, is, and I, I was with Mr. Ovo a million times when he would say to me, we'd, we'd been at a plant and we'd come through for the first pass assessment. And any kind of company and we would be with them, review the floor, talk about it with them. And then we'd come out and we'd drive back to where we were going. And he would say, I'm not so certain about their soul. Hmm. And, you know, when I first started hearing, I thought that's a little deep. Um, But what I ultimately realized is that Toyota's soul is around manufacturing. The we do all our Toyota does all these other things wonderfully well, but in the end, they are they were born and grew from from manufacturing. It's in their soul. Now, do we want is the soul you know expanded as much as we want? <laughs> Maybe not. But when we would go into a company, what Mr. Ogle would think is their soul might be in marketing. They might be a design company. Um, they wouldn't say that to you, of course, you know, they're like, we brought you here to look at manufacturing. But Mr. Ova's feeling was that if their soul isn't with manufacturing, if that's not their burning reason Mm. to get up in the morning, and that's not where they naturally want to go, then we might be pushing them to do something that they're fundamentally not aligned with. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, I wound up having um, dinner with a guy, a CEO of a plant that I'd worked with for a while. And I was just on a, normally I'm pretty hands-on, but we were through that stage. And I said, I'm going to come back and check in with you. And he said, yeah, and we've got to go to dinner. I normally don't really do that. Got to go to dinner because I've got some kind of tough stuff to talk about. And he was just sharing, you know, he was a design guy originally. And he said, I know where you're trying to get me on this manufacturing thing. I know you're disappointed that I'm not moving as quickly or as purposefully there. 
And we went back and forth. He said, I just want to understand. And I said, well, I've just got a question. It was kind of heated. And I said, where is your soul? Mm -hmm. And he was like, uh, and I said, I mean, the soul of your company, I can't make it manufacturing. If it's not manufacturing, that's fine. That's your company. But we need all of it. Mm -hmm. But I am going to have a really hard time helping you if your soul isn't oriented to the floor or to operations. Yeah. And that's just making me think, and maybe it's just uh, leave it as a point of reflection. You know, there's a lot of people in the audience from healthcare. And if they're still listening, I think there's an interesting question um, to think about in healthcare. You know, the soul of the organization, the delivery of patient care. Right. Right. Um, and for the frontline staff, yes. But then as you get up through leadership ranks, is that the passion of the executives or are they focused more on finance and other right. aspects of the organization? Yeah. Yeah, it is a deep question. But for me, it's it's really because sometimes you'll have a, a disconnect, you know, maybe the organization in healthcare, the frontline. I mean, most of those people are signing up because they do have a mission and purpose in life and a soul that is providing care. And then over time, as people, you know, get raised up to the executive ranks, maybe their personal objectives and focus start to disconnect with that front line, um, Mm -hmm. that front line view. I'm very lucky that our mutual friend, Eric doesn't have that problem. Right. Yes. Eric Dixon (laughs) from, uh, UMass Memorial Health, yes. Um, so um, yeah, and and you think of you know staff and leaders at different levels. Um, you can think of the effect of the accumulated overburden. For a lot of healthcare professionals, sadly, there is physical overburden, mental overburden. For leaders at different levels, they are facing mental overburden, and I think that was true before COVID. Yeah, it's it's huge. I mean, it really, really is. It's huge. But it, it, you know, if we look at it from that view, then we're we've got a lot of possibilities and opportunities. If we just look at, okay, I know you guys are tired, but where's the waste? We got to get out of this. It, there's a different discussion. Of, I know you guys are worn out mentally and physically. What can we do to make your lives better? Because you, if it's if you're not here and not having enough energy to get through a day, then we're none of us are okay. Yeah. Well, that's well said. And I'm, I'm very glad that you are um, helping um, Eric and working with him. And you know, I want to thank you, Lisa, as we wrap up here. Thank you so much for sharing your story and your reflections and your lessons from Mr. Oba and, and, and what you continue to do. So, um, you know, again, our guest has been Lisa Nichols. You can find her online, lisanicholsconsulting.com. I'll put Links to all of that in uh, in the show notes, um, Lisa. I, I give you invite you uh, to give the last word. Is there any other thought you might want to share before we go? Um, not really. I would say one thing. In Mr. Ova's case, he was you know I look back and he had an obituary that literally took me one minute to read, one minute, and I felt sad. But then I thought about wow, what a network of enlightened, you know, people who are out there trying to do the right thing that he's, that he's left and his sons 
um, it's it's just kind of joyous to see the people are that his legacy is living on. And so I know those of us that are really close to him are extremely motivated now mm-hmm. to, to help keep the flame burning. Well, and, and one illustration of that legacy and impact, I know I said it was giving you the final word and you had a great final word there. You said you didn't, but you did. <laughs> um, I think it's really inspiring um, on on the webpage with his obituary, um, the stories that people have posted as comments yes, about the impact that he had on, on them. That's really, um, really great to see. Yeah. I know he had a great impact on you, Lisa. Yes. I was blessed. Absolutely. Um, so thank you for sharing some of that. Um, Thanks Mark. It's been a lot of fun to talk to you as always. It has been Yeah, great fun talking with you. Thanks. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.